0: sleepcoolnow.com 1212.
1: This is the World According to Zig podcast for December 8th, 2019. My name is John Ziegler. On those of the show where you can still get the truth about the news of the day and the events of my life from a conservative perspective in this world turned upside down. If you're interested in the more overtly political news, specifically that related to President Donald Trump, make sure you check out my other podcast, which is called the Individual One Podcast. You can find that in a variety of ways, but you can also just go to our website, which is freespeechbroadcasting.com. That's freespeechbroadcasting.com to find a link. To the individual one podcast. We did episode number 75 of that today, and I hope you'll find that to be of interest. Generally, on the World According to Zig podcast, which has evolved quite a bit over the last few years, I talk about things that I'm directly involved in or things that are going on in my life. And one of the things that I've referenced numerous times uh, over the last few years. Is the issue of Santa Claus and my now seven year old daughter, Grace Ziegler. And that's how I want to begin uh, this episode of the podcast. Obviously, we're now deep into December. Christmas is right around the corner. And this is a topic that uh, has been on my mind for quite a long time. And I've referenced uh, on several occasions we generally interview Grace once or twice a year still hoping to do that again before the end of the year hopefully before Christmas and perhaps we'll get into this topic although obviously not directly in case unless there's a major development and she has decided that uh, she no longer believes in Santa Claus at all but uh, i find this topic to be uh, interesting not just because it's directly impacting my life Uh, But because I think it's emblematic of a lot of much larger issues uh, that we face in a society. And it's also a remarkable piece of my evolution uh, or de-evolution, depending on your perspective, as a human. Because uh, for those 13 people that have been longtime fans of my career, they probably know or remember that I am a huge, at least philosophically, a huge Santa Claus critic. I uh, When I was on KFI in Los Angeles and when I was in Louisville, Kentucky, uh, and I can't even believe I did this in retrospect, not because of what I was saying, but because of the fact that I was saying it on, on uh, very uh, you know well-rated radio stations where children could be listening as opposed to a podcast where it would be much less likely that a, a child is listening, uh, I would openly question whether or not the Santa Claus tradition – made any sense. In fact, I would castigate it. I I thought that Santa Claus taught a whole bunch of bad lessons. In my mind, it was this this whole concept of getting something for nothing, and that uh, there were a number of problems with Santa Claus. It was over-commercializing the holiday. I never understood it from the perspective of Christians embracing Santa Claus because, let's face it, if you're teaching your children about uh, Christmas being this combination of Santa and Jesus, right, which never makes a lot of sense to the kids. Wait a minute, how are Santa and Jesus related? Uh, But you're creating the Santa Claus myth surrounding the birth of Jesus, and you're trying to do this hybrid, right? Well, just using basic logic, What's going to happen once the kid reaches 8, 9, 10, 11 years old and they no longer believe in Santa? Are they not, at least subconsciously, if not consciously, going to connect Santa Claus to Jesus and then start questioning whether Jesus either existed or actually is the Son of God or what have you? So I never understood that Perspective as someone who grew up uh, as a Christian, as a Catholic, who now refers to myself as a recovering Catholic because, well, I think it's a great way to live your life, and I wish more people did. I, I do not believe that Jesus of Nazareth was the Son of God. I don't even necessarily believe in an actual God the way most people think of it. I certainly not an act of God. I am at least agnostic. That's on a good day. On a bad day, I am an atheist. <laughs> uh, but, but from a standpoint of you know growing up in, within the Christian culture, it, it always baffled me that uh, Christianity was so willing to embrace uh, Santa Claus, not just because of the commercial aspects of it, but because of what I just mentioned regarding, okay, what do you do once the child no longer believes? Are they not going to connect that to Jesus? And then I guess the, the biggest problem I have, and this has really hit home as a parent, is I hate lying it's just not in my DNA. For better or for worse, I cannot lie. And uh, this has been a, a great hindrance to me in my life and career. And, uh, and as a parent, the idea that I'm going to be revealed as a liar to my, my daughters—I have seven-year-old daughter, Grace, and two-year-old daughter, Diana—that I'm going to be revealed to them as a liar, having participated in this massive cover-up of this thing called Santa Claus— for a few years of uh, fake joy is really problematic to me, and it's and partially it's selfish, partially it's my own credibility at stake, but also I think the part that hits me the hardest uh, in my heart and my gut is the the notion that let's use Grace as the examples and she's seven years old that believe in wonder and joy her for all these years is going to be crushed in a way that I'm going to be responsible for, at least partially responsible for. And I, if you take a look at this from the bigger picture, what is Santa really, right? What, what does Santa really accomplish? Well, obviously there's a commercial aspect to it. I mean, there's no question that without the commercialism that Santa provides, I mean, com- Santa is a huge part of our economy, Huge. Without Santa Claus, uh, the economy would be in, in much uh, more dire uh, shape. Uh, specifically, obviously, this time of year, because people buy a lot more stuff because of Santa Claus. That's just a, that's just the reality of it. That's and that's partially why the cover up is so good. I mean, this is this is the greatest unorganized conspiracy cover up of all time. Is the Santa Claus thing? I mean, there's no there's never been a meeting among anybody. To create and maintain the Santa Claus myth. It's never never happened. They don't need a meeting. Everyone's just acting in their own self-interest because everyone knows where their bread is buttered and everyone knows you don't mess with Santa Claus. He's a cash cow, right? That's part of it. But in the bigger picture, to me, Santa Claus is the most prominent example of a fake reality that we create for our children to shield them from the way things really are, from the way the world really is, I would say that Santa Claus and Disney are really the two pillars of this fake reality that we create. And it's it's not a coincidence that I was also a, a very huge uh, Disney critic throughout my younger years, and now here I am. I spend an enormous amount of time at Disneyland and trying to protect my daughter's Santa Claus myth. I'm the biggest hypocrite of all time. There are reasons for that uh, that uh, parents will understand once the equation changes when you have uh, two young children, especially two young daughters who are super into Santa Claus and super into Disney princesses. I'm not defending myself. I'm just telling you the way that it is. I fully acknowledge Uh, What an unbelievable hypocrite I am on this. But Disney and Santa really are the two pillars of creating a fake reality. And this is a subject that I have gone back and forth on uh, a lot in my life. Because I'm a believer that the vast majority of adult life sucks. It sucks. It sucks being an adult. And so if you accept... And I didn't know this until, obviously, I became an adult. I I grew up thinking that when you're an adult, that's when things are awesome. (laughs) When, in reality, you should hang on to childhood as long as you possibly can. Because after childhood, it all sucks. Reality sucks. And not always, but certainly in comparison to childhood. So if you accept the notion that adulthood mostly sucks, then hang, creating a circumstance where childhood lasts as long as possible makes some sense. And, and this is the part of the whole Santa thing that, that really gets to me and hits home. Is, and then why I have, uh, much to my chagrin, I have become part of this Santa conspiracy because I do understand the value in shielding grace from the way the world actually is. She has a view of the world that is not based in reality. She has a view of the world that is magical, uh, that has wonder. And while she is you know, like every other kid, she's a brat at times. It has brought her a lot of joy and happiness and hope. And she's super into it. I mean, and Christmas, she's Way more into than even the average kid is. If you recall, it was about a year ago when Grace decided on her own, although with a little help from dad, because I thought it was, you know, courageous of her to even try to do this, she decided that she was going to put on her own ballet to the Nutcracker at our local stage in our local park. And uh, she even appeared on this podcast <laughs> thinking that she was promoting. She actually thought she was promoting her theatrical stage performance of the Nutcracker Ballet and was very, very disappointed. It was heartbreaking when we showed up at the park and she actually mumbled to herself that there's no one here. Because I think she thought that having promoted this on the podcast that there would be a crowd even though she didn't give the exact location and time of when her performance would be she thought there would be people there and was borderline devastated when there were not people there other than my wife and our then one-year-old daughter Diana and and me taping it and so this was the end of that performance which was pretty hysterical for reasons that had nothing necessarily to do with Santa Claus and have uh, much more to do with her temperament and how uh what a difficult position dads are in, in these circumstances. But just to refresh your recollection, this was the audio of the end of Grace Ziegler's six-year-old Nutcracker ballet performance a year ago. Yay! I
0: told you not to say anything.
1: Apparently, we are not supposed to cheer. That was Grace Ziegler performing the Nutcracker. How was it? I thought it was great. What do you think, Diana?
0: It's not the ending, and I'm quitting, and it's a cancel.
1: we are canceling the rest of the concert. Okay. i sure it's Daddy's fault. <laughs> it's a cancel uh, has become a, a phrase often used in the Ziegler household. Uh, and that'll give you a sense of Grace as well. As, that tells you a lot about Grace. Uh, and I, I wish I could say that's a total aberration, uh, but it's not. But she also obviously has uh, her uh, charming moments. Some of them you may recall on this podcast. Is Trump a bad guy or a good guy? Yeah, there's that one. And... I am the leader! Do as I say! Anyway, Grace has embraced uh, a, a completely uh, fantasy Version of reality, although I shouldn't say complete because that's what's to to me most interesting about uh, her evolution and when she's going to figure out that Santa Claus is a myth. Because a large part of this year for her has been about investigating mysteries, she is huge. I mean, huge. Into whether Bigfoot exists, she's huge. Into whether or not the Loch Ness monster exists. In fact, we have exchanged email. Uh, she with the head of the Loch Ness project at in the uh, At Loch Ness in Scotland. She's uh, created very nice uh, depictions, artwork depictions of the Loch Ness monster for this person named Adrian Shine. Uh, who, who she's a big fan of. She uh, is big into uh, uh, the abominable snowman and the chicacabra and what else? Um, all, all whatever you know, whatever mysteries there are. Oh, the kraken—that's another big one. She's huge into the kraken, the sea monster. And what's fascinating to me about this is she will start from a position of belief and. But, but it's not like she wants me to only show her evidence that these things actually exist. She is actually pretty good at saying, well, wait a minute, that's not good evidence. That video wasn't any good, or that doesn't make any sense. I mean, so she's, she's got the basics of being able to deconstruct a myth, and I have been proud of this on one hand, because that's frankly kind of what I specialize in is, is taking these media myths and deconstructing them and showing everyone why they're such bullshit, uh, or at least mostly bullshit in, in many cases. And so that's been cool. But the, but the negative part of that has been I have been completely convinced that once this Christmas came around, that the entire Santa Claus myth was going to crumble, uh, like a house of cards. I wouldn't say completely convinced. I've been worried. I've been worried about it. And the reason why I've been worried about it is a couple one, a couple reasons. Number one, I had hoped that we would get one Christmas where Grace was still all in and Diana understood what was happening. Obviously, this would be the year. Grace is seven years old. Uh, she's in first grade. Uh, Diana is two and a half and just now starting to understand the whole thing. Diana doesn't quite understand it as much as I maybe expected or hoped. She gets it to a certain degree. She knows who Santa Claus is. Obviously, she totally buys in. It's not going to probably be until next year that she's all in, assuming that she takes the same path as Grace did. But I have never really thought it was uh, particularly likely that Grace was going to make it to eight years old. I I thought this has got to be the last year where she's all in. Now, I'm fully aware that there's this phenomenon uh, that's really pretty common that there's a year or two where the kid's not sure. They might even be pretty confident it's not real, but they don't want to let on that it's not real because they're afraid, one, if they're wrong, they're going to blow the whole thing. And two, they kind of want to please their parents uh, and they want to make sure that this this present machine uh, maintains itself. They don't want to do anything to upset the apple cart. So you usually get a year or two of that where' there's, they're, they're technically in but not all in. Um, and, and from Grace's perspective, I do really do, I, I have a, this sensitivity towards trying to one, protect her from the way the world the real world is, maintain her sense of wonder and awe and the idea that there's some semblance of magic in the world. And also prevent as long as possible this excruciating moment when I have to watch Grace realize that the whole thing's a load of crap and that her dad lied to her uh, or at least allowed her to believe something that was not true for several years. So this is where my self-interest is. And uh, I really do. I honestly dread this moment because I think it's for grace. It's going to be a big deal. Now, my wife has told me that I'm crazy for even worrying about this that much, that uh, she'll figure it out. She'll get over it. Uh, It'll be interesting to see whether or not she tries to ruin it for Diana out of anger. (laughs) We don't know that part yet. Um, But, you know, my wife has said, John, you're worried about uh, nothing. This happens all the time. I guess I'm just somebody who won takes my word very seriously. I, I can't stand uh, saying things that are not true or making promises that I can't keep. Uh, but more than that, I I really am going to miss the grace that sees the world in a way that it's not instead of seeing the world that it is, which is kind of weird from a guy who is all about the truth and all about reality. I envy the fact that she doesn't yet have to live in the real world because the real world can be an awful place, and there's not that much joy, and there is no magic, and obviously there is no Santa Claus. And once you realize that there's no Santa Claus, that changes your view of everything. Because once there's no Santa Claus, then you you have to reevaluate all of the way the world is, and it's generally in a negative direction. By the way, one other aspect of Santa Claus that uh, is someone in my defense for why my position has changed, because I think it goes to how much society has changed. I mentioned that Santa Claus. One of my problems with Santa Claus is that he teaches that you can get something for nothing, and I came to that view. You know, obviously, as in my twenties and my thirties. So this was in the you know late nineteen eighties, early nineteen nineties, and. Back in the early 80s and uh, late 80s and early 90s, yeah, uh, that was something for nothing. But we've now uh, gotten to a, a situation where socialism is now so part of our psychological fabric and that we're so used to giving people something for nothing that in actuality, Santa Claus has gone from being a full on liberal in comparison to the rest of our culture to being at least somewhat conservative because at least Santa Claus requires you to pretend to be somewhat good. Now, let's face it, he never really brings coal in the stocking. That's just an idle threat. But at least there's some deal that's being made. In theory, it never seems to work out that well. I've always been amazed at how, what a poor threat Santa Claus is in provoking good behavior. I mean, I I actually thought that that would be one of the benefits of Santa Claus, that at least you'd get good behavior through December. I have found that to not be at all the case. Whether they don't take the Santa Claus threat seriously or their brains just can't function that way, I have very rarely found that the behavior in December is any better. In fact, it's oftentimes worse because of the pressure involved and all the excitement that's inherently in place here. So that's, that's been a part of the equation that's never really worked. But I will say that in theory, at least Santa is requiring something for the welfare. He's requiring you to be good, like to stay, you know, basically it's like the government saying you can't have welfare if you've committed any serious crimes, (laughs) which I guess is a fairly conservative concept in this day and age. And that's really what Santa is. We're going to give you the welfare as long as you haven't been a really bad kid. And even then, we're probably going to give you something. So that's an aside about Santa Claus. So from a Practical standpoint, I've been very concerned about what was going to happen once we broke out Eli the elf, the elf on the shelf. Her name, or the name for uh, Grace's elf is Eli, it's a hymn. And she has really been into Eli. I mean, uh, what's interesting about this is that we've done Eli for now, uh, this, this is going on, I, guess, I think, the fifth year. And the second year we did Eli, I actually posted on Facebook that I thought it would might be the last year <laughs> because Grace had said to me, and this is amazing, when she was like three years older, uh, she, she actually said to me when she was three, I think he's fake. So at three, she had enough suspicion about Eli that she said to me, I think he's fake. And I don't even remember how I handled it, but we were able to, you know, maintain the Eli thing, even though I don't even like the Eli deal. I don't even know how this thing happened. It was my wife's idea, but I end up with the responsibility of maintaining the the whole Eli deal, which is a, an enormous amount of effort, depending on how often Eli comes out. But generally, you know, about every other day in the morning, Grace is looking for Eli, and we have to hide him somewhere. And, uh, This creates, you know, all sorts of potential problems, but we've been able to maintain this for for several years. And for some reason, while Grace hasn't been as into Eli, like for instance, when we would say goodbye to Eli on Christmas Eve, we have video of her in legitimate tears, legitimate tears. That doesn't happen anymore, but she's still super excited. And she's been asking about Eli for a couple of months now. When are we going to start to see Eli? When's Eli coming? I want to talk. I want to see Eli. And I was just convinced, oh my gosh, this stupid little stuffed uh, doll uh, that's, you know, like eight inches long uh, and and doesn't look anything real at all. How in the world is the seven-year-old Grace who can see through bad Bigfoot videos or bad Loch Ness Monster videos, how in the world is she going to look at Eli and go, okay, uh, that's real? I mean, she's going to go, what the fuck is that? And by the way, she might even use the F word, but that's another story for another day. Uh, I mean, the re- the reality is I thought there's just no way. She's not going to go for this. So we decorated our Christmas tree this weekend, and that's traditionally when Eli uh, comes out uh, <laughs> of my closet and, uh, and makes his first appearance. And uh, Grace seems To still be into it. However, there is a part of this that feels like acting, and I don't know whether or not it's just the nature of being older or whether or not she's conflicted, whether or not I think there's part of her that wants to be convinced that it's real. There's part of her that's afraid of saying that it's not real, but I'll give you an example of what happened today. So she came out today looking for Eli, and she found Eli, and uh, she came to me and she said, Dad, uh, can you videotape me going down uh, the hallway into the living room where the tree is? And I said, okay, uh, what's going on? And, and she says, well, no, I want to look for Eli. And so I I did it, she asked, and I videotaped her, and she went right to the tree, and she pretended like she was shocked to see Eli and excited to see Eli in the tree, and we finished the video. And I said, Grace... You knew he was there, right? It's just, yeah. I said, "Well, why did you have me pretend to, vi- you know, to videotape you?" And, and you were just pretending that you were looking for Eli. And she says, "Well, because it's our tradition. It's our tradition. This is what we do." And I, I wanted to have a video uh, of me uh, searching for Eli. So, I don't know what's going on. I don't know if, if we're still all in, if we 're somewhere in between. if this is a total con job on her part, I don't think it's a total con job uh, because I mean she's still all in on Santa. she's written several notes to Santa. We haven't narrowed it down to the final list yet. We're getting close but the, the <laughs> but she she is still all in and um And I don't. I don't. I'm still. I'm so conflicted about all of it. I mean, I I can't really even enjoy what might be the last year of this. One, because I'm so terrified of at any moment something happening and and the whole thing collapsing. And and two, I'm so concerned about this inevitability, the inevitability of this lie uh, coming to fruition, and me being at least part of the cause. Uh, of uh, Grace seeing her world literally uh, come crashing down all around her. Now, again, it's not—she's going to get over it. She's going to get over it. I get that. Um, But I do think there's a bigger issue here of this notion of having created a fake world, a fake reality, a reality that's far more fun than the real world, that once Santa Claus is known to be fake— will never exist again. It will never, ever exist again. Welcome to the real world. Uh, Good luck. (laughs) And and given my experiences in the real world, I guess that's why I I will mourn the death of Santa when it inevitably comes. But it does not appear as if it has happened yet. I'll keep you updated, and we hope to talk to Grace at some point uh, before the Christmas holiday is up. Uh, I do want to mention one other thing regarding Christmas and the commercialism that got a lot of publicity this week, and this is that the Peloton ad. Now you either know everything about the Peloton ad or you know nothing about the Peloton ad. So this is one of those topics that's more and more difficult to discuss in this fragmented media age in which we live, because you know, you have to explain it to somebody who has no clue what you're talking about. I guess the best, if you're curious about this, the best thing to do is just Google Peloton ad, uh, because I obviously can't show it to you. The the basics of this ad are uh, that um, this incredibly beautiful woman comes down in this uh, tremendously well-kept large house with her uh, perfectly behaved daughter uh, in matching pajamas on Christmas morning, And she is excited to see that her husband has given her a Peloton bike. And this thing is uh, like $2,300. And the rest of the commercial, we later learn, is a series of videos of her, most of which she took of herself, using the bike in various circumstances over the previous year. And at the end of the ad, she is showing the video to her husband who gave her the bike, very proudly explaining how the bike changed her life and uh, how incredibly grateful she is to her husband for purchasing this $2,300 exercise bike. Uh, Now, you're not going to believe this because I have no proof of it. I didn't even tweet about it. But I alerted my wife to the Peloton ad at least three weeks ago. When, when I saw it, I said, Allison, you got to take a look at this. And I went through it frame by frame mocking the Peloton ad. And I almost never do this. So I was, I was way ahead of the curve on the Peloton ad controversy. Uh, interestingly, one of the things I found to be most ridiculous was the idea <laughs> of this perfectly coiffed woman coming down on Christmas morning with her incredibly well-behaved seemingly 6-year-old daughter who wasn't going crazy uh, and everything was incredibly well kept the house looked perfect and here she and and then and then the idea that her husband had the gall to give his incredibly fit beautiful young wife a Peloton exercise bike i mean It's absurd right off the bat. I mean, come on. It's just flat out ridiculous. I mean, and I realize most commercials are ridiculous. I mean, most commercials are creating a fantasy, but this fantasy was so off the charts. I mean, this woman came home from work, looking like she was walking out of the pages of, an, of, a, of a magazine as a model. She's she's a 10 or at least a 9.8. Uh, again, perfect makeup, perfect hair, uh, dressed to the nines, and she's all excited to start getting back on her Peloton bike. <laughs> I mean, really? Come on. You cannot be serious! All right, so, so why did this cause controversy? So this became viral or went viral about a week ago, When I'm guessing there were women who were offended by the ad, although a lot of virtue signaling men decided to become offended by the ad too, because the essence of the ad seemed to be that this woman (laughs) who was perfect felt pressure from her husband to, I, I don't know, get in even better shape using the Peloton, and she felt so... Frightened of him, that she actually made a year-long series of videos that she could make for him to thank him for the Peloton at the next, uh, the next Christmas or the next go-around or whenever the year ended. And you know, Peloton, of course, was adamant that this was not the point of the ad. I think the problem for Peloton is they don't look at their their product as a weight loss mechanism. They they this is like a cult. Peloton is kind of like a cult because. When you exercise, you can actually be part of, a, if you pay an extra fee, you can be part of, a, of a, essentially a teleconference where you're, uh, you're participating with other people in the routine of using the Peloton. And so they don't look at it as, okay, uh, I got you this Peloton because your ass is getting fat. <laughs> They're looking at this because this is a life improvement mechanism and she's now thanking her husband for helping her improve her life. So this thing became this huge controversy, uh, so much so that Ryan Reynolds, the movie star (coughs) who uh, owns, I guess, his own line of vodka, hired the actress from the Peloton ad to do essentially a, I guess you would call it a sequel to the Peloton ad, where now this woman is out drinking with her girlfriends, clearly lamenting her horrendous home life, where she's forced to use a Peloton by her, I guess, psychologically, if not physically abusive husband. And that went hugely viral. I have not seen Saturday Night Live from last night. I would be shocked. In fact, that people should be fired from malpractice if they didn't do a spoof of the Peloton ad uh, last night. Um, but the Peloton ad, I think, has been uh, at least somewhat misinterpreted. Uh, I actually think, as I mentioned, that there are other elements of it that are more ridiculous than the uh, the weight loss aspect of it. Uh, but I just did want to mention that um, in case you still believe everything I say, which hopefully you do because you know I don't lie, I had mentioned this to my wife uh, several weeks ago. Uh, let's see. A couple other things I wanted to mention. Pfft. Um, <laughs> I wanted to get into whether or not Penn State is coming here to the Rose Bowl because it indicates uh, how strange my sporting uh, rooting interests have become, Uh, but this apparently is a decision that's going to be made at any moment, and I know it's going to be old news by the time we put out the podcast, so... I'm hoping that Penn State will be coming here to the Rose Bowl. Not because I like Penn State. I hate hate Penn State now because of what's happening in the whole Joe Paterno-Jerry Sandusky uh, scandal. But um, I now live my life because of very strange circumstances. If Penn State does come out here to the Rose Bowl, uh, Franco Harris has promised me that he is likely to come out for the Rose Bowl and that he will finally stop ducking me on the golf course. So these are the strange... Uh, motivations I have in rooting for sports now. I used to be such a big sports fan and now I- I'm reduced to this kind of stuff. That it, the, how does it impact me in any way, shape, or form? <laughs> uh, so I don't know whether or not... Uh, it's going to be close. Uh, I, in my opinion, uh, Penn State should go to the Rose Bowl not just because uh, uh I want them because of the Frank 2 to because of the Franco Harris uh aspect and frankly you know what, knowing Franco he'll probably find some way to duck me anyway even if they come so I'm not going to even put but it at least gives me it'll if they do come to the Rose Bowl and uh, and uh, Franco decides to come which I think he will Hall of Famer Franco Harris uh and he ducks me on on the golf course I can at least then make a deadlock cinch case that he is in fact ducking me because this will be the second time that this has happened when Penn State has come to the Rose Bowl uh, since we've become friends and uh, we haven't been able to tee it up, which he continues to tell me we're going to do. Uh, but they sh- they do deserve to go. Um, oh, by the way, I, I was correct. Uh, our producer, uh, Kevin, has, uh, has in fact uh, told me that SNL did mock the Peloton ad in their cold open. What a shock. I mean, that was the most obvious... Uh, spoof of all time. I have not seen it. I don't know if it was any good, but in fact, that did happen. And it was even uh, done by uh, Cecily Strong, who I expected was going to be the actress to play the Peloton girl. But anyway, as far as uh, Penn State, Wisconsin, uh, I think Penn State deserves the the Rose Bowl bid based upon the way the rules have been set up. But last night during the uh, Big Ten championship game, the analyst, Joel Clack, who usually is a pretty good smart guy, went out of his way to campaign for Wisconsin to get the Rose Bowl bid. And I don't know if that's going to have a deciding effect on the committee and how they decide these things. I thought it was totally inappropriate for him to do so. The weirdest part is that he did it twice. Um, But even then, I'm kind of conflicted because— I have a very good friend, Cyrus Narasta, who's from Wisconsin. He's the filmmaker, the guy who did the past 9-11 and a bunch of other movies and has a movie coming out next year. And he wants Wisconsin to go to the Rose Bowl. Uh, so I guess I really can't lose. But I don't I don't know what's going to happen there. My, my get, my guess is it's probably going to be Penn State, but I don't know. It's probably a 50-50 uh, proposition. Uh, and speaking of Cyrus, Cyrus actually asked me, to, um, to to do a commentary. He did this via Twitter, so I feel somewhat obligated to my friend. I don't usually take requests like this, but uh, he actually asked that I comment on this very strange uh, op-ed or essay that was written in the New York Times yesterday by Kate Hill. Kate Hill is the uh, female Democratic congressman from here in Southern California who resigned a couple months ago because of a scandal involving her having sex with one of her subordinates in her office. And part of why this became so well known uh, publicly is because that there were naked photos that got released. And a lot of people on the left tried to make, including her, tried to make this issue about the photos being released. That somehow this is her being slut shamed or something, and that it you know that she re- resigned from Congress because of these photos and not because of the part where she had sex with a subordinate in her office. In a way, this is kind of like the Matt Lauer situation without a false allegation of read via Ronan Farrow, uh, where Lauer was fired from his job at NBC because he had uh, sex with someone who also worked at NBC on company grounds, which was a violation of his contract. Uh, Still waiting on Matt Lauer's very, 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 very extensive response, which hopefully will come out Uh, Sometime soon regarding what a fraud Ronan Farrow's journalism is in the book, which accuses Matt Lauer of actually uh, raping the woman uh, for whom he was fired. because he had a uh, consensual sexual affair with Brooke Nevels back in 2017 was when Lauer was fired. That affair occurred uh, during the 2014 Sochi Olympics in Russia. But there's some similarities here between the Kate Hill situation and the Matt Lauer circumstance. Now, uh, in part of this never ending effort by the left to uh, turn even those who have been caught in scandals into somehow being heroes Uh, Kate Hill had a lot of supporters, especially among uh, those who are feminists, saying that somehow she was treated differently because she was a woman. I I don't understand that logic at all. Uh, But she wrote an essay for the New York Times where she added another wrinkle to this effort of her being a martyr. And that is she disclosed that during this whole process of her resigning from Congress, and now becoming a, just a regular citizen, that she had contemplated suicide. And when she promoted on Twitter the essay she wrote for the New York Times— by the way, I doubt very seriously that the New York Times would accept a similar essay from Matt Lauer to explain uh, his firing, but that's another story for another day. But the New York Times apparently, uh, very with open arms, embraced— kate hill writing this very self-serving essay where she when she promoted it herself she actually referred this is amazing to me she referred to her essay as having a trigger warning in other words she was giving her twitter followers a she referred to it as a trigger warning that she references her contemplating suicide in other words because the article itself doesn't warn you that she's going to talk about her having contemplated suicide. She needed to make sure that you, her Twitter follower, knew, hey, warning, trigger warning, don't click on this unless you're prepared to deal with the fact that I talk about contemplating suicide. Now, I don't even understand this whole trigger trigger warning to me is like... <laughs> I'm triggered by the words trigger warning because I think it's completely and totally uh, absurd. It's just flat out ridiculous. Uh, But the idea that you have to put a disclaimer within the promotion of your own New York Times essay that there's a trigger warning as if people can't deal, as if they're not being able to they're not going to be able to read that you contemplated suicide during all this without being completely triggered and your mind blown and, and and uh, you know, you need a warning about this. It, I mean, it's, it's, it's actually more absurd than spoiler alert. Like when you talk about a movie and you have to tell people, hey, wait a minute, spoiler alert, don't read further uh, unless you want to know what happened in this movie. Well, she was giving her own trigger warning for this New York Times essay. Now, the idea... That somehow that uh, any of this should be mitigated because she contemplated suicide is also baffling to me and you no, know, who the hell knows who knows how seriously she com- contemplated suicide to me she has shown no signs of someone who really seriously contemplated suicide uh, let 's face it folks. Um, I would suggest that anyone who's been married has contemplated suicide at some point, I mean, especially if you've had kids. I mean, if you, you've you been married with kids, you've contemplated suicide uh, probably on a fairly regular basis, uh, at least based upon my own experience. So the everyone has contemplated suicide at some point. It's how seriously you contemplated it. And frankly, unless you really give it a serious try, it shouldn't count uh, because that's just being, that's just being human. Uh, I mean, there are all times we reach low points when we think, boy, oh, maybe I should just kill myself. Uh, I, I, I have done, uh, you know, myself, I've had this happen thousands of times in my life, some more seriously than others. Now, as a 52-year-old, I, I do find it interesting that Kate Hill is 32 years old. And I, I have an, a huge bias against uh, that generation uh, I would I don't know what how, how I would define it. Probably under the age of 35, uh, and because not only are they a bunch of wussies who have uh, grown up uh, incredibly spoiled, most of them getting trophies for nothing throughout their entire lives, not keeping score during soccer games—you know—all the all those clichés are true. But one of the things that really stunned me when I went back into coaching uh, earlier on in this decade. Uh, both as a, uh, a football coach and as a golf coach, I especially for football, for obvious reasons, I was stunned, I mean, blown away with how the definition of being injured had changed. When I was a kid, and this is not, you know, we went to school uphill both ways in the snow type of revisionist history. This is reality. When I was a kid and I was an athlete, the definition of being injured to me uh, was you were not able to function in a way that was remotely helpful to the team. Like your arm was broken, so you couldn't throw the ball. You just physically could not throw the ball. All right, that was the definition of injured to me. Not functional, all right? Now, bear with me. I'm I'm getting to why this is relevant to the Kate Hill uh, suicide circumstance. When I started coaching again in 2010, and, and granted, this was in a pretty soft area very uh, well to do area of southern california but it was still stunning to me because we were a good football team what i soon learned was that the new definition of being injured is i am in some level of discomfort that's the definition of being injured and by the way it might not even be physical it could be emotional this gets to what adam carol and i talked about in last week's edition of the world according to sig podcast where people now view their hurt emotions as the, and their feelings as the same thing as being physically assaulted. So I was blown away that the new definition of being injured is, you know what, I'm in discomfort, I'm, I'm injured, I cannot play. And this was a fundamental difference to me. Well, I think uh, that with Kate Hill, it's very similar, where because I have thought about suicide, I am therefore suicidal and therefore I can use this as an indication of just how deeply I have been hurt by this whole set of circumstances. And that I can use this as a shield. Oh my gosh. Oh, you are the victim, Kate Hill. Even though this all came about because of your own actions, you did this not someone else. Yes, someone leaked the photographs and that made it more painful for you. I get that. But the actual base allegations that caused her resignation were 100% on her, 100%. And this idea that being having contemplated suicide, which I find to be in the vast majority of cases garbage, because we all do it to some degree, uh, and I don't trust it because there's no evidence of it. There's no indication of her behavior that's consistent with it. It doesn't seem to fit anything within this storyline, a, a serious, uh, for instance, an attempt of suicide. To me, that that's where I'm going with that injury analogy. If you attempt suicide in a serious fashion, that's totally different than contemplating it. Just like being in physical discomfort is totally different than being physically unable to perform on a playing field, and therefore you are injured. So that's the, the nature of the analogy that I'm making, which I think uh, is relevant to the fact that she's 32 years old. But the bottom line here is that this will work for her she is now making herself into the victim. And there will be no scrutiny of this in the mainstream news media at all. In fact, even the conservative media will probably be afraid to take this on because it's just too toxic. It's just too frightening. Uh, It's just too scary and risky to go after her because she's now made herself into a victim. And that's, of course, the American dream. The American dream now is to be a victim, especially when it gets you out of having done things that are wrong, and especially even better when it allows you to get money from a deep-pocketed entity that will not fight back. That's the real American dream. To be, to be a victim of a deep-pocketed entity that will not fight back and will give you lots of money for things that either didn't happen or weren't that big of a deal if they actually did. So that's my uh, Katie Kate uh, Hill uh, commentary as requested by my friend uh, Cyrus Narasta. That'll also do it for this episode of the World According to Zig podcast. As is always the case, uh, please Uh, I ask only two things of you. Number one, please share this via social media, Twitter, Facebook, word of mouth, what have you. And number two, if you're one of those people who sleeps and when you sleep, you use sheets, please pay attention to this important message. My name is John Ziegler. Our website is freespeechbroadcasting.com.
0: Coffee? Oh, thanks. How did you sleep? like a baby.
1: I don't want to get out of bed, ever. These sheets are mm,
0: incredibly soft. Performance fabric, huh? Maybe we should. Oh, I don't know. Try them out again. <laughs> <laughs> Comfort and performance for better sleep. That's Sheik's. S H E E X. Sheik's. Try Sheik's for 30 nights risk free. Go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com, promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 1212.